Product Heroes and Conference Announcements before we get into this week's episode. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference will be taking place April 2nd through 5th of 2017 in New York. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference is the professional training event that's not just for software architects, but for any engineer, programmer, developer, or team leader who does part of an architect's job. You'll get coverage of the most important topics of the day, from highly respected experts leading sessions, hands-on tutorials, and in-depth professional training. If your job involves architecting and defining systems, evaluating tools and technologies, leading teams, or mentoring others, and collaborating with system stakeholders, you'll want to be there. Save 20% with discount code USRG. For more information, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 50017. CycleConf will be taking place on the 21st through 23rd of April. CycleConference is a conference about CycleJS, a functional reactive programming framework for the front end. Visit cycleconf.com to find out more. Tickets for FlatMap Oslo are available now. FlatMap Oslo is a functional programming conference with a focus on Scala on the JVM, taking place May 2nd and 3rd in Oslo, Norway. Please go to 2017.flatmap.no to learn more. ElixirConf EU will be taking place May 4th and 5th with tutorials on May 3rd. ElixirConf EU is a community conference created to promote education, networking, and collaboration within the Elixir, Erlang, and Ruby communities. For more information, visit www.elixirconf.eu. OzCon will be taking place May 8th through the 11th in Austin, Texas. The O'Reilly Open Source Convention combines the experience of the open source community with ideas and strategies for using open source tools and technologies and gives you exposure to the full stack and all possible configurations. There's no event quite like OzCon, the best place on earth to sharpen your skills and discover new techniques, making you better at what you do and igniting your love for all things code. Registration is now open. Save 20% on most passes with the code USRG. For more information and to register, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cbc slash 50016. LambdaConf 2017 will be taking place on May 25th through the 27th in Boulder, Colorado, with training days available on the 22nd and 3rd and mini-conferences on the 24th. For more information, visit lambdaconf.us. Elm Europe will be taking place on June 8th and 9th in Paris, France. Evan Zablicki and Richard Feldman will be speaking, and the rest of the speaker lineup is online. Early bird tickets are sold out, but standard tickets are still available. For more information and to register, visit elmeurope.org. Euroclosure will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on July 20th and 21st. Euroclosure is the biggest closure conference in Europe. Founded in 2012, the conference is a great place to meet Clojure developers and learn about what's happening in the language, in the community, and in companies using Clojure. The CFP is currently open and closes Friday, April 21st, and registration should now be open as well. Visit 2017.euroclosure.org for more information and to keep updated. BusConf is a nonprofit, open space unconference about functional programming taking place from the 3rd through the 5th of August in Germany, near Frankfurt. They provide a platform for people to meet, teach, and learn about functional programming-related topics in any languages. Ticket registration is already open, and you can find out more at www.bush-conf.org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you'd leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media. 
I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I am Harris Proctor, and this week with us we have Brian Joseph. Brian, would you mind telling the audience a little bit about yourself? My name is Brian Joseph. I live in New Orleans, and I work for a company called Revelry Labs. That's also in New Orleans, and that's about it. I came across you at ElixirConf 2015, and I think Eric had made mention of you because you're both in New Orleans. Eric Norman, I should say. But we came across, got to talk to you a little bit, and at that ElixirConf 2015 in the U.S., you were talking Elixir Script. So I thought it'd be interesting to get you to come on, share where it's at now, give a little bit of rundown for people who haven't heard about it, and some of the rationale and reasons behind it, and some of those frustrations of changing semantics between different runtimes. But let's just start out with how did you get into software in general, and then how did you get exposed to functional programming to begin with? All right, so I've always been interested in computers, but I didn't really get into programming until college when I started taking computer science classes. And I didn't really get passionate about it until, I would say, further along in my career. How did I get into functional programming? I think it was sometime around maybe 2008. I was a .NET developer, and Link came out around that time, I think. And I started reading more about like how it works and everything like that. And it kind of led me into looking at more into functional paradigms and things like that. So I think my first functional language might have been Scala. I played around with that for a couple of years and then eventually landed on Elixir in about 2013. If you come in and you're not really excited about it, you just found it, you started taking it up in college because you're like, oh, this is fun, but it's fun. What was the thing that sparked the passion when you started coming in and saying, oh, now this excites me. Now I get excited to do this. That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> but when it happened, it just it just clicked. Like from that point on, I started doing a lot of open source projects on my own time, just inside projects and things like that. Before that, I was really into like doing music mostly. And I was just... Basically, being a programmer was just a way to, I guess, make money while I try to do music stuff. But at one point, it just kind of flipped, and I started just doing programming in the day for work and then programming at night for fun. So you get hooked. I'm assuming this is before Link. If you come across Link as well, and then all of a sudden say, hey, there's something here. I'm going to dive in and start understanding some of the origin of this. If this is some of those functional ideas, I'm going to go off and spend more time looking at this. What were those resources that you started looking into and how did that transition into you starting to look at Scala? I don't remember. It was, it was a long time ago, but there was like a, I think a blog post explain, explaining how Link works and like how it works basically on sets of things and, and comparing it to SQL. And then... I know that Scala's collection API is kind of based off of Link. And so I didn't really want to do like .NET in my spare time. And Scala looked interesting to me. 
So I went that route. And were you just doing Scala in the evenings in your spare time, but still doing .NET? Or did you actually make the jump to actually do Scala full-time for a while? No, I never made the jump to do Scala full-time. It was just in my spare time. Basically, at night, when I didn't have anything to do, I started working on a side project for a web app. It was going to be something about recipes, cooking recipes. And it was tough at first, because that was my first real functional programming language. And it took me a while to to get my head wrapped around all the things. But after a while, it just started clicking. And I remember one time, my internet had went out, and I couldn't look at the documentation. And for some reason, it made me learn it a little bit faster by just, just playing around with without, I guess, relying on the internet whenever, whenever I would get into like some kind of stumbling block. So you do .NET. You get into Scala. You start playing around. You start with the recipe idea. I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one who's thought about that recipe idea. And it sounds like a number of people have done it because like, hey, yeah, it's a domain I use. And then you realize that, at least for me, it was, this has to be pretty compelling because nobody I know was actually not lazy enough to take all the recipes, put it in, and they just keep their stupid filing junk drawer of printed off recipes and flip through that. So I'm assuming that's what happened to you as well. Well, I had this crazy idea that you can boil down any set of instructions to a recipe. And that's what kind of led me to trying that idea. So you're playing with Scala. At some point, you get exposed to Elixir and you come into Elixir. What was the thing that caught your attention about Elixir from Scala? Was it you were playing with Akka at that point and then realized, hey, there's Erlang, which is the actor model it's kind of based off of. And, oh, wait, there's this new spin on it, which is Elixir. What was that story that took you from doing .NET in the day job? Looking at Scala in the background, on your sides, playing with these other apps, playing with this recipe app, and then saying, hey, here's Elixir. What was that transition that put Elixir on the radar in? Was that an immediate thing? I got to go check this out. Or did it take a while to build you up to be, yeah, there's something here? Yeah, so the transition from Scala to Elixir wasn't a direct thing. So I was into Scala and uh, I liked it, but the compile speeds and just the speed of like going from like developing something to testing it and back again, just that whole loop. It was pretty slow and I just got tired of it. And I know I wanted to use a functional programming language. And so I just went on this, I don't know how long it was, but a couple of years, just trying out different languages to see if one would be a good fit for me. And I remember seeing on Hacker News, it was like, Maybe it was the summer of 2013, there was a a post on Elixir, and I looked at it, and I even went through the guide on the site, but I didn't really touch it until probably the end of 2013. I had picked up Dave Thomas's book, Programming Elixir, and went through that, and at the time I had, it was my first remote job, and I had some time during the day to basically make a make some scripts using Elixir to do certain things. And I just kind of got hooked between Elixir's tooling and pattern matching. Those are the two things that, that really drew me in. And you get drawn in by Elixir's pattern matching and tooling. Scala has some pattern matching is my understanding. Was that something that you were familiar with? And you're like, oh, here's another way to do this. And this is nice because this language has it too. 
or if you were playing with some of these other languages, trying to figure out where it is, picking up these languages for a little bit and saying, eh, is this for me or not? Was there a click there once you got it and you had Dave Thomas's book, or was a lot of that still foundation still being set? And then when you got Elixir, that helped solidify the foundation at that point. Yeah, so Scala, I knew it had pattern matching, but I didn't really understand what pattern matching was when I was using Scala. And it wasn't until Elixir came along where I understood what was going on. And it it kind of did click immediately. I felt like by like January 2014, I was already, I'm not going to say an Elixir expert or anything like that, but it clicked enough for me to like start using it a lot on my side projects and things like that. And at that point, if you get into Elixir, you're starting to use it in your side projects. You're starting to set this foundation. What was the foundation and what was the seed that was planted that said, you know what, this is nice. I wonder if this would translate to the browser that started you to lead down to Elixir script. I'm sure there were seeds planted before and you didn't just wake up one day that said, Elixir script, I'm going to put Elixir in the browser. But there were some seeds that planted that. What was that? process like that got you thinking maybe this is something i should be doing before you actually turned it on full throttle it wasn't until about early 2015 when i actually attempted it but before that i guess in 2014 there was a, a lot of talk of i think closure script was getting more and more popular and there were other languages that were also like compiling to javascript and I remember there was this mailing list thread on, I think it was the Elixir Lang mailing list, talking about possibly compiling to JavaScript. And that kind of put the idea in my head. And I looked around a bit to see if anybody tried to do the same thing with Erlang. And I saw there was a couple of attempts, but none of them quite made the finish line. And I kind of put it on the side for a while. Honestly, I never thought I would actually be the one doing any of this. But in 2015, must have been in February, whenever Chris McCord's book, Metaprogramming Elixir, came out. And by that point, I was writing a lot of Elixir, but I, I didn't use a lot of macros. But anyway, that book showed me that the Elixir AST was pretty readily available to anybody who wanted to do anything with it. And at the same time, it, it might have been for this or it might have been for another reason. I was looking at the SpiderMonkey AST the Mozilla SpiderMonkey AST API. And I had some time off for Mardi Gras, and I decided to experiment a bit and see if it was possible to translate Elixir to JavaScript. You had time off for Mardi Gras and decided to experiment. That sounds like how uh, all bad ideas start. <laughs> Except yours resulted in actually being the steward of a new language now. Yeah. Being in New Orleans my whole life, Mardi Gras doesn't have the same appeal as some other people. But you come in, you start getting invested enough that you're going to jump in and go to Elixir script. Was the thought, because you saw the SpiderMonkey AST, was the thought that you could just translate this AST directly into another AST and that was the goal? Or what was the seed that actually started to plant that says, maybe this is feasible, maybe this is something I want to do and I've got this break coming up, so let's jump in and do it. I'm not sure. Okay, so there are some basic primitives from Elixir and JavaScript that are the same, but I know the languages were pretty different. I guess in the beginning, I was just trying to figure out 
just first steps as far as like what it would take. And as I kept going, it was kind of a really fun project. It's almost like a puzzle, really, trying to convert features in one language in one paradigm and in like one completely different virtual machine to another. So that's kind of what kept me going. You made some pretty quick progress, is my understanding, if you just started in February of 2015, because roll around to, I want to say, August of 2015, ElixirConf US happens, and you're up there giving a talk, which we'll include in the show notes, but you had some pretty decent progress on ElixirScript that you were showing off at that point. How did you find the progress between that February of when you started and making it in and getting your first revision there at least enough that you can say, hey, here's something here that I'm working on and a place that I can start taking contributors and not just setting the foundation anymore. What was that transition looking like? I guess because I was so interested in it and because it was it was such a, a fun project, I pretty much worked on it all the time. Um, well, not all the time, but pretty much every day in some kind of way. And there were a lot of times when I would get to a certain feature that I wanted to translate to JavaScript, and it would take me a while to figure out. First one was probably pattern matching, which was basically the thing that I wanted the most anyway, because, well, once I got hooked on pattern matching in Elixir, I really wanted that in JavaScript. So that was the thing I worked on first. But then things like bit strengths took me a while to figure out. So, yeah, it just... uh. A lot of work and a lot of studying, basically, to figure out like how to translate from one thing to another. And this is where things like the Elixir documentation came in handy. And also, I found some blog posts by Joe Armstrong that kind of came in handy for some things. And if you're starting to do this, you've got bit strings and you've got the pattern matching that you're trying to get in under the covers. Knowing that Elixir for a lot of it, is written in Elixir with these macros. How much of this were you actually having to try and translate the underlying data structures, data types directly, or was this the point at which you were able to help take that small core and just translate some of that small core in? And some of these were just things you got with macros. Because what I'm kind of wondering is, if you're going back to the documentation to understand how this works, Elixir's got the nice feature of doc tests. Were you able to take advantage of some of these doc tests or did you not even need them because some of the stuff was still at the macro level and you started to get for free once you established a little bit more of the baseline, once you started getting these things and you were able to do pattern matching and bit strings? That's a good question. I don't think I even looked at the doc test and I might do that now that you mentioned it. So my main focus has been on the special forms, which are the things that I knew I wanted to get working and with the hopes of maybe I could use Elixir's uh, macro system in some way to handle the, not handle all of the rest, but handle some of the things. It turns out I couldn't really use too much of that, but I did start getting to a point where I was writing some parts of Elixir script in Elixir uh, slash Elixir script. And I guess it's about time, as you were starting to dig deeper a little bit to it, is you want to try and write Elixir script. You're thinking Elixir for the browser. What are you thinking there? I know there's been a couple of translations that some people have. When the semantics are different, what are you hoping to have with Elixir script when you see your vision of what it is? 
how much of that's a direct translation, how much of that's a similar language look, but different semantics, how much of this is trying to keep as many semantics, but and keep the concurrency, but without the inherent parallelism. Give the rundown of where you see Elixir Script and what your goal is for people who actually aren't even familiar with the concept of Elixir Script. Sure. So the goal has pretty much always been to try to get a subset, if not all of Elixir, translated to JavaScript. And with that, a person to be able to write, if they're writing an Elixir library or application in Elixir using Elixir Standard Library, then making it so it's possible to translate that to JavaScript. So supporting as much of the Elixir standard library as possible and working at that level. So along with that, I, at some point, we mentioned Eric's name, Eric Norman. He had a talk in New Orleans about ClojureScript, and he mentioned how it embraces the environment that it's in. And that's also, from that point on, that's kind of been one of the goals of ElixirScript as well is to embrace that it's you're in the JavaScript environment and make it easy or make it less of an impedance to work with JavaScript modules and functions that are available to you. Now, right now, ElixirScript, it doesn't do any kind of like processes or, or anything like that. At some point, it might. And I've actually tried a couple of times, and I have an implementation of the actor system in JavaScript, but I haven't fully, I've never actually fully integrated it into Elixir script for a bunch of reasons, but it is something I want to do. And that's where I was wondering was you mentioned closure script, because I know some people are, well, we want to keep as much of the semantics of our base language as we can in do what we can to maintain those versus the, and just use the JavaScript as a runtime, which it seems sounds similar to some of the Haskell kind of stuff where they want to try and maintain as much laziness as they want instead of being eagerly evaluated just because they're running on JavaScript. So they're going to do some of those implementation details that say, hey, give me laziness when in an otherwise strict language versus, as you mentioned, closure script, which says, look, we want this to be closure. We want this to be Lisp. We want everything to run everywhere. But still, we wanted to respect the semantics, respect the interface, keep a common FFI kind of style foreign function interface to whatever platform we're on and respect the platform. So it sounds like you're leaning more towards the, I want to give you as much Elixir as possible, give you the whole full experience that I can but respect and know that you are underlying JavaScript runtime, interacting with JavaScript libraries. There's libraries that are in JavaScript that you'll probably want to use, so we need to figure out how to make use of those and take advantage of them. That sounds like a correct understanding on my end. That's 100% correct. And so as you're looking through these semantics, what are some of these trade-offs that you're making as you look at some of the Elixir semantics and the JavaScript semantics that you're saying, hmm, okay, if I want to embrace the native runtime, here are some of those trade-offs that I'm going to have to look one way or another, whether or not I say, I'm going deep on the JavaScript side, or no, 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 I'm going to hold on to the Elixir side here. What have been some of those semantic differences that you've already come across in doing this, and which way have you swung on those? I guess the big thing so far has been 
processes. So like I mentioned before, I did have an implementation of processes that work in JavaScript and it uses generators. It has a scheduler and it uses generators and it passes, I guess, the yield points of generators to the scheduler and then the scheduler kind of schedules running each of those yield points. So let me back up a little bit and say that in that implementation, each process would be basically a generator function. And that's what is coordinated between with the scheduler. And I have went through several times, like integrating that into Elixir script. But each time I would stop at some point and wonder, basically, is this a good idea? One of the big reasons is, is JavaScript interrupt? And if I was to do something like that, then the JavaScript interrupt story for Elixir script would probably have to change. And being that it's mostly me working on this, I didn't want to make any decisions on that that I couldn't reverse on. So that's probably the biggest thing. Other than that, it's just using it, I guess, in practice, there are some differences. Like JavaScript has a lot of callbacks and there's promises. So things look slightly different when you're interacting with things in JavaScript. Given that Elixir is a Beam language and the Beam has its interaction for the ports and outside FFI, have you kind of taken some of that style so it looks similar? Or do you just say, we want this to be different enough that people realize that this is now transitioning to a different style of Elixir. This is Elixir script, not Elixir that when you're running this and you're and you're doing the FFI differently than you would have just done than a port call to C or Java if you were on the server using Elixir. Yeah, so it doesn't use ports. I've thought about it and, and it still might become a thing, but right now it, it doesn't use ports to do any FFI. It basically tries to treat JavaScript functions and, and modules as Elixir script functions and modules. And so if you call into a module that is in JavaScript but isn't in Elixir, like when you're compiling, you'll get an error, you, not an error, you get a warning saying this module doesn't exist. But when you, you know, compile it with Elixir script and, and you run it, it's going to call the existing JavaScript module. And currently, the way that you define which JavaScript modules you're using, like if you're using an NPM module, there are some configuration that you would use to define the path of the module and then the module name that you want to use so that we know to include those modules into the compiled JavaScript. And there's, well, this is going to change in the next version, but actually I'll just say how it's going to be in the, in the next version. So for things in the global scope, it's basically going to work like ClojureScript and that ClojureScript has, was it the JS namespace where you put, you know, JS slash and then call something that's in the global scope. So script is going to have kind of the same thing, but it's going to be like, you know, the JS module. So JS dot and then whatever global module or function you want to call. And that's in JavaScript. So it sounds like you're going more the route of Elixir calling into Erlang with script calling into JavaScript. Because it's the same underlying runtime, you see those as the same kind of interop as opposed to punching out to a different kind of language? Yes, that's correct. That makes sense. And it sounds like that's something because you're embracing the underlying runtime that says, look, 
If a module is a module, I don't care if it's written in Elixir or Erlang. Well, why don't I care that if it's a module is a module, I don't care if it's written in Elixir script or JavaScript. If I can just say, here's a module and these things have functions. Right. And it goes back to trying to keep the impedance low while interacting with JavaScript. And so if Elixir has immutability and it tries to be more functional, sometimes pure in some cases even, how does Elixir script deal with the messy world of JavaScript that you might have? If you're calling into a module and you're dealing with some of this stuff, again, in Erlang or Elixir with the runtime, you might still have side effects. You might not be pure because you're going across and sending a message somewhere else. So you do have side effects, but if you're passing the data along and you're passing data back and forth, is there anything special you're doing to help ensure that if I pass something or if I return something and that's going to be immutable at that point? Are you taking advantage of anything like the immutable JS or anything else under the covers that say, when I do this Java interop and calling the Java modules and functions that they're not messing with my data, that's a read-only copy that they get, or that's a copy that they get and they're not modifying it. And how are you kind of aligning some of those semantics there? Yeah, so right now in Elixir script, things like lists, which are converted into arrays, and maps, which are converted into into objects, those are made immutable using object.freeze. But anything coming in from JavaScript, there isn't anything to ensure that those are immutable. And I'm probably going to remove this certain thing eventually, but there is a function called js.update that just in case you have to, like, for some reason, you're using some library that wants you to, like, mutate some some JavaScript object, they, you do have the ability to do that in Elixir script. But every day, I think about taking that function out. And if you're doing the object freeze, I haven't messed with that in JavaScript a while, mainly because when I do JavaScript, it's in the giant, messy world of mutability everywhere. So I don't get to take advantage of actually freezing. But is that a deep freeze or is that just a shallow freeze that, well, we're freezing the map, but the things in the map may still change underneath me? It's, uh, I believe, a shallow freeze. It doesn't freeze everything. So I might freeze my hash, but the underlying string that's a key in there could potentially change from underneath me if someone's not playing nice with my Elixir script library because I have interrupted with outside libraries in JavaScript then. Yeah, unfortunately. And I don't know that there's anything wrong with that as long as you know that up front and know to account for that instead of being bit all of a sudden and being surprised by like, wait, I thought this was immutable. Right. And I didn't want to use anything like immutable JS because, well, Personally, I'm not a fan of Immutable JS because it doesn't completely follow like you know JavaScript semantics of what you expect from collections in JavaScript. But it would have been nice to use something like that. But I, I wanted to make sure that for the most part, that the primitives that you are using are JavaScript primitives where it's possible. And so, as we were recording this episode, apparently within the past week or two. There was another bomb that came out in the JavaScript world that says, hey, WebAssembly is now standard across all browsers of Firefox, Safari, Chrome, IEE, I think maybe even Opera, I heard, said, hey, we're going to support WebAssembly. Is that something that's kind of on your radar that I don't know if you've looked at it? that says, hey, if this is adoption, maybe this is a nice way to be able to deliver some of these features? Or is that something you've not looked at? Or where does that fit in with the story in 
where you think that may or may not help you if you've looked at it? I've definitely looked at it. It's been on my radar pretty much since the beginning. And I feel like that's the theme of the day because it's come up a lot today. Yeah, I've looked at it. It's a little bit too early to try anything with that. I think with a language like Elixir, just because there isn't a, like a garbage collector in WebAssembly just yet. So that can be a showstopper. So it might be a while. But I know it's a plan to have things like that. So it's definitely something that's on my radar. And I try to keep up to date on the latest and greatest with WebAssembly. And I haven't looked too much into the details of it myself, other than knowing that it's supposed to be this common target. So you don't have to boil down to JS. So I wasn't sure if, even if it's early days, you're like, once that gets stable, I'm punting on these problems. But if those problems line up with, the web assembly that those could be a nice fit to punch out and write this part for a web assembly thing. And I wasn't sure how much of that was again, different semantics, but still helping because you're like, Oh, I get, I get these other things. I might be able to just have some of these same codes that if I can get the actual beam runtime to compile into web assembly to some extent, maybe that solves some of my problems for me kind of thing. Yeah. Personally, that would be my, that would be something that I would like to see. I don't think I could possibly do that. I don't think I'm smart enough to do that. But it would be, I know that there is like a LLVM backend for Erlang. And I just wonder if it would be like, it would just, I know it would be a complex problem, but I wonder if it would be not that complex of a problem to be able to use WebAssembly with, with something like Erlang. And that's what I was wondering. I figure as someone who's having to write and maintain and do every piece of code that you're going to be doing and be the steward of and maintainer of every single piece of code that someone else wants to add to your library. What that was kind of looking like for some of these things that are coming down the future and either new versions of at the ECMAScript standard or WebAssembly where you're like, I could put off a whole set of problems over to this once this thing gets stable and has enough update that I can be like, hey, yeah, maybe I just translate tasks into promises and put a nice API wrap around them. Then I don't actually have to write anything about a task because that thing's solved for me because it's just a nice whatever promise future standard comes in kind of thing. Yeah, that would be nice. And I know there's like, they're also on the roadmap, there's something on there about threading and other concurrency primitives. So there's still a lot of work to do on uh, WebAssembly, but if you're using a language like C, C++ and like something like Rust, things that don't necessarily need a garbage collector, you can probably start using it now. But for languages like Elixir or anything that relies on like a garbage collector, it still might be some time. And so where is Elixir script now? So last I talked to you was in the hallways at ElixirConf US 2015. I've seen some stuff come back and forth since, but if we're going to give, we'll include your presentation there as well. So we can go back and see what it was like there, but. Where is it now? How has it come up through in the almost two years since you first started talking about it? And what does the picture for Elixir Script look like now? So it's it's kind of come a long way. There are a lot of things that changed since then. And I spoke about Elixir Script some more at Lone Star Elixir this year. And even that talk is a little bit outdated because... Just being at the conference just inspired me to like do a whole bunch of stuff. So 
all of the Elixir special forms have been implemented except for receive, which, as I mentioned before, like uh, processes aren't supported just yet. After talking to some people, let me backtrack. So Elixir script used to compile basically each module would turn into a code file or a JavaScript ES module. But as of today, it now compiles to one JavaScript file. So you can choose between ES modules, CommonJS, or UMD. So you can use the output directly in the browser if you wanted to with just one script tag. So since I have most of the special forms implemented, now I'm trying to focus more on on usability things and adding more of the Elixir, like more implementation of the Elixir standard library. So that's where things are. And besides that, I also want to make a big push into using it more in projects myself. Like I've made a couple of example projects, but I haven't used it in anything serious myself. So that's something that I want to do. And then that way I can feel more confident in telling other people to use it in, in their projects. And if you're just using this in your side projects and you're wanting to try and pick it up more in your real world projects and put it through the ringer and maybe encourage other people, where should people actually think about saying, these are the kinds of things maybe we pull in a Elixir script here for, if they're interested in this? What are those selling points that say, you could be writing JavaScript, you could be doing something else, but if you're already writing Elixir, some people like Elm, some people haven't been taking the move, but what would you position Elixir script as now that you're saying these are the places to start pushing it and seeing how this will work for you if you got these side projects and these low risk projects that you want to actually put through a ringer if you could port something? I would say if you have like maybe a bunch of structs that you want to share between like Elixir and Elixir script, that's something that you can do. You can do code sharing between Elixir and Elixir script if you want to. Maybe if you have some problems where pattern matching would be helpful as opposed to whatever you would end up doing in JavaScript to make it easier to separate a problem into different patterns, that's one thing. You can also use macros. So if you think that macros would come in handy for certain things, like for instance, one of the demos I've had uh, basically made a macro that created a bunch of React functions for each of the HTML elements so that you can kind of do like stateless React view functions. It ended up looking similar to Elm's view functions. So if you want to do things like that, that's possible. So yeah, I guess there's a bunch of things that you can do. Also, if you just don't want to write JavaScript. So there's that. And where do you see the near term and the longer term future of script? Is there stuff that you have on your radar that you're willing to talk about? You say, here's the things I'm thinking, at least tentatively, that are on the near term within the next six months to a year that are out, or maybe even shorter because you think you got it. And what is some of that stuff that might be on the longer term that you'd love to do? You'd really love Elixir Script to have it if you had people that came out and said, hey, we think this is a good idea to... We want to help and contribute. What are some of those things that are in the near term that if it's just you working on this mainly as the sole maintainer that you've got on your radar? And then what are some of those bigger dreams for Elixir Script? So in the short term, I would say the big thing 
is getting as much of the Elixir standard library implemented as possible. Some other things, I think eventually I want to try to work on getting the, the output smaller by doing some dead code elimination, things like that. Kind of jealous of things like ClojureScript where they have the Google Closure compiler where it can just do all these things automatically. So things like that. It doesn't do source maps yet, and I think that's like a, a pretty big thing. That would be something that would be helpful. I do have this idea about maybe compiling to async functions instead of like regular functions and doing some things with that. Like, for instance, I mentioned that the process implementation that I had it uses generators, but I have been working kind of here and there on maybe re-implementing it or making a different version of it using async and await in JavaScript. It wouldn't be as automatic, but it, it could be something that could work really well within Elixir script. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. And you mentioned getting that core library solidified a couple of times, and you just mentioned it again. How much does that look like? And I know Elixir has tried to take a lot from Erlang and just interop to it, but clean up the APIs and standardize it across a bunch of different modules because the Erlang core contributors and some of the creators of it have come out and said, yeah, we realized after the fact that we didn't do a good job with consistency across modules. How much of that are you actually having to rewrite from scratch versus how much of that is more of the macro system that you're building on and you're able to essentially take advantage of it from just some of the core functionality that's already there? I think I'm re-implementing most of it. Let me think. Yeah, I end up many most of it. And some of the underlying semantics are a little bit different. For instance, JavaScript has loops and, and things like that. So I end up making a lot of, I guess you call them shim functions that I write in JavaScript that I use in Elixir script to implement some things. But with the change I mentioned earlier about using the uh, the JS module as like the global indicator, I think I might be able to reduce some of that actually to where there's even less of Elixir script written in JavaScript. One of the big modules that is still written in JavaScript that is used by Elixir script is the enum module. And that's one of the ones that I really want to eventually write in Elixir. Like most of the rest of the Elixir script in the library is written in Elixir script, but that's one that's still in JavaScript. And there are some other modules that I want to translate over, but I just don't know how they would work in JavaScript. For instance, file, how would that work? It would be easier to write something that works with something like Node or one of the the non-browser JavaScript environments. But in a browser, that's not really something that you can do. And that actually brings up another question that I wasn't even thinking about, mainly because if I'm going to do it, I'm probably going to pick a different language than JavaScript on the server. And using JavaScript as a scripting language outside of the web. Are you kind of working to get ElixirScript for that, or are you mainly trying to keep ElixirScript for the browser and saying, if you're going to be doing this, you're probably going to be writing Elixir on the server instead of JavaScript? Yeah, so my main use case is the browser, but I've also been very careful of writing ElixirScript to support, I guess, as much of the portable JavaScript as I can mainly focusing on 
the language itself and not necessarily the environments. And when I can, if there's like different ways to do different things and different environments, then trying to support all those things. The biggest one I could think of right now is the global scope. So in a browser, you can have either, basically you can have window, you can have self. And I think there's another one. And no, I think is global or maybe nothing at all. I can't remember. And so there is um, some code in Elixir script to make sure that you can get the global scope no matter what environment that you're in. But as I mentioned, trying to stick to the JavaScript semantics of the language itself as much as possible. Okay. And we're coming up on time. And before we get into where people can go to learn more, research, download, play, figure out if they want to help, get support, is there anything we didn't cover or at least touch on a little bit more in depth? No, nothing I could think of. I think we've covered a good chunk of things. In that case, where can people go and find out more from Elixir Script? They've heard this. They've started hearing your sales pitch. Where can people get the full story and figure out where to start playing with this, where to get it from, what the story looks like, the documentation, or where they can help with and say, if you need some more documentation or if you need this or you need this, where can people go to find out more, start playing with it, start contributing to the Elixir Script community if they wish? Sure. So. The GitHub repo is at github.com slash script slash script. That is the main repo for script. It's also published in hex, so you can find it in hex as elixir underscore script. I created a, a blog to keep people updated on progress, so that's elixirscript.github.io. There is an script channel in the Elixir Lang Slack. There is also a Gitter room for it as well. I think that's everything. Yeah. And then you mentioned the Lone Star Elixir that just happened. We talked about ElixirConf US 2015. Have you given any other presentations that people can find and start to get a taste and see you talk about it more in depth and actually show some slides, show some code samples, show a little bit of it instead of just listening to this? So those are the only two talks I've given on it at conferences. So that's pretty much it okay and we'll get those in the show notes so people can go back and find those and at least see where it's come from how it's progressing and get a little bit more detail and so you mentioned you just gave the talk at lone star elixir as well but are there any conferences that you're hoping to speak at you've been accepted to speak at in the future or at least are just going and attending as an attendee not yet i haven't thought about it really I don't know if I'm the conference type, or at least for like presenting. I thought about going to a couple of conferences. Like, I think I might try to get to Strange Loop if I can, or maybe even Elixir Conf this year if I can get on a plane. But I'm not speaking at any of the conferences just yet. And then you mentioned the blog you're getting set up for Elixir Script. Are there any other places for people to find you and keep up to date with what's going on? I guess maybe Twitter is the best place. My Twitter username is BrianJOS, and actually that's my username pretty much everywhere. So you can find me on GitHub as that, on Twitter, as I said. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And I'll get those added to the show notes as well, so people can find you, follow you, and keep updated with your progress as it continues on. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Brian, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you and catching up and seeing how Elixir Script is 
been progressing and getting a better view of where Elixir Script actually falls. And it was a good clarifying discussion for me, at least, of where those differences in semantics come from and how you're tackling those. So it looks like it'll be an interesting project moving forward. Best of luck, and I hope we've done enough to at least spark some interest from the community as well, that you may be able to have some more people to help give feedback and even contribute and help grow that community. So thanks again for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you again. Well, thanks. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.